Hello and welcome everyone to our 64th session of Alucasa. My name is Michael and today I'm talking to Jeffrey Host from Chattanooga in Tennessee. Jeff is a recovering attorney who spends his time as a real estate investor. He currently owns 180 residential units and multiple commercial properties and is a real estate podcast host himself. Public speaker and also real estate investment advisor focused on cash flowing real estate investments across the entire US. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, like, like you said in that intro, I'm a full-time real estate investor. Uh, I've been doing this since uh, 2010 about, uh, so really started in the bottom of the market cycle. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I've, I've been buying uh, single family homes, condominiums, uh, and apartment complexes uh, during that whole time. So Awesome. Yeah, very interesting and very touching uh, life story. Um, you started as an, uh, well, you did not really directly start in real estate investment. You had a previously you had a different uh, career and also were entrepreneurs yourself. So um, give us a quick overview of your journey towards real estate investor. Uh, sure. So uh, I started out, I mean, I've always been in, interested in real estate. My parents had a few residential rentals when I was a child. So I had an exposure to it, but I really started out as a lawyer. I went to law school uh, and then ended up uh, getting into bankruptcy law. So I did bankruptcy work for five or six years. Um, and then during that time, I ended up uh, being diagnosed with leukemia. Once I uh, once that happened, I just uh, kind of kind of spiraled out of control for a little bit. I thought I was going to die uh, and ended up, um, you know, having to close down my bankruptcy firm, filing bankruptcy myself, which was particularly embarrassing for a bankruptcy attorney. And, uh, and then I just said, I got to do something different. I have to figure out a way to make money. Even if I can't work, even if I die, I want my wife to be supported. Uh, so I took a job uh, and I started taking the money from my job and using it to buy real estate. You um, gave a very interesting presentation on your own YouTube channel, which was uh, very touching and very um, impressive. The way you described your journey um, until you start to become real estate agent, uh, real estate investor, I'm sorry. Um, you had this, your own idea of visiting so many places in this world and had this Moses, your, your own, your own, uh, your own uh, calling. And one day you also figured out, okay, now actually I know what my calling is. Um, I think it was a, such a nice presentation and you, you gave us like, such an impactful speech about it. Um, what is it this, that makes you being drawn to real estate that much that you feel like so so passionate about? Well, that's, that's a good question. Thank you, by the way, for the kind words on the speech. Uh, I love doing those. So if anyone gets a chance to come see me talk, I'm happy to you know make sure you introduce yourself. But uh, uh, so you know, I don't know uh, what I like about real estate is the flexibility it gives me. Right. So I mean, one of the things I really enjoy is that um, like last month, I took the entire month off um, and I went to, uh, well, really most of February. So, you know, it's April now, but, but almost all of February, I was in Africa um, just traveling and, and exploring and doing the safaris and things like that. And, and I wouldn't be able to do that at all if I had a regular job. So I love that flexibility, but I've actually always been attracted to real estate um, and like I said, it might be from that early exposure from my family, but, you know, even like a game like Monopoly just seemed, it made sense to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know, I used to sneak up late at night, um, when I was like 14, 15. And instead of watching, you know, like what normal 14 and 15 year old boys watch, I was watching like late night 
real estate infomercials. So I was watching mm -hmm. people talk about no money down investing and stuff like that. I mean, I think that are not there are not that many fifty year old people who are watching uh, who are watching uh, cash flow uh, real estate shows. Uh, so definitely, we can see that you have like directly already uh, a calling there. Um, you have real estate investments in both, uh, especially like Michigan area and also in Chattanooga. Um, starting with Michigan, give us an overview of of this area in, in general. How can sure. for people who have never been there, how can you describe it? So, so Michigan's really, it's a very big state. So it depends on what side of the state you're on. That's the first thing that I would think about. And really there's a, so there's an upper and a lower peninsula. So it's, and both of them are about the size of the average U.S. state. So it's just enormous, but it's, um, it's almost 500 miles from north to south in Michigan. So it's just bigger than a lot of European countries. Um, so there's a lot of diversity there, you know, have everything from farms and, and forest land to, um, you know, inner city and urban landscapes. Uh, so, you know, like on the on the east side of Michigan, you have Metro Detroit, which is, you know, it's a fairly big industrial uh, city with, you know, the car manufacturers. So you have some suburbs of Detroit that are just, you know, loaded with um, wealth, um, you know, engineers and doctors and all this kind of stuff. And then you have a lot of lower income areas as well. Um, so Detroit is like its own market. Um, and then the rest of the state is much more rural, although there are other cities like Grand Rapids and um, Lansing and Kalamazoo that are fairly large as well. Um, and then, of course, Flint. And you've got, um, you know, there's been tons of news over the last few years about problems in Flint. Um, and that's primarily resulting from the, the car manufacturers really leaving Flint and not doing as much manufacturing mm -hmm. there. So, um, so, like, that's sort of an overview of Michigan, yeah. right? Um, but as far as like, you know, trying to decide where to invest in real, in real estate, and, and I think this applies to everywhere, not just to Michigan, but, um, the trick I think is to make sure you have a deep understanding of that market and then kind of decide, what are you looking for? Do you want to buy, uh, you know, residential property that's going to, you know, be stable and predictable, or do you want something that maybe has a higher return? I mean, a lot of times lower income housing can have a higher return, but it's going to require a little bit more effort on your mm -hmm. part. Um, and so you kind of got to decide, do I want to be in um, the city of Detroit? Do I want to be in the, in, in, and have that extra intensity of having to make sure that you're really staying on top of your investment? Or do you want something that's a little bit, um, you know, easier to manage that's maybe outside of the city, but, you know, in one of these uh, uh, areas where the return might not be quite as good. The the appreciation over time might be better, but the cash on cash return might not be as good. So that's kind of how I think about Michigan and, and, and real estate in general, actually. Yeah. How many properties in, uh, in total do you have in Michigan and Detroit area? Uh, sure. So um, in the Detroit area, we have about 150 units of residential mm -hmm. um, and one commercial building. So the um, the units, though, are not all separate buildings. So we have the biggest um, property we have in Detroit is a 41 unit apartment building. Um, and then the smallest are just single family houses. So we've we have some houses that we were buying, uh, you know, 10 years ago for you know, super cheap, like, you know, seven or $8,000. And they're now maybe $40,000 houses or something like that. Okay. Um, and then we have the apartment complexes, which, you know, those are, you know, a few million, they're, they're, yeah. they're much more expensive. How do you, how do you achieve from, you know, in, in fact, you just mentioned like two, two elements in within five minutes, bankruptcy and owning more than 150 uh, mm -hmm. uh, properties. How, how, do, how does that happen? And how, how, how can I achieve that? 
yeah, it's actually not as hard as you think. It's just mm-hmm. about moving forward. Um, you know, I was saying this uh, before about how I was just in Africa, and I, I don't, I didn't mention, but I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, which is the highest mountain in Africa, mm-hmm. and it was really hard. But um, the hardest part was making the decision to go there and get there, right? That's mm-hmm. the first step. And then the second step was just keep walking, right? Like I just had to keep walking. If I stopped walking, then I started second guessing myself and I started thinking I'm not going to make it. Um, you know, but if I just kept looking at the next point and saying, you know, if I just make it to that corner, then I can reevaluate, I can quit. That's, that's how you do it with real estate. I mean, it's like that, I think with anything in life. For me, when I when I was bankrupt and I didn't have any money, I got this job and I made decent money and I just saved some cash up because you do need some money. Mm-hmm. And then I went and bought this property with a friend of mine. Um, it was a condominium uh, and it was a bank foreclosure. And we just, he was already doing it and I saw what he was doing and I thought, you know, I want to partner with him. So we went and bought this property for, I think it was about $30,000 uh, US. And uh, this was in 2010. And we paid cash for it. Um, you know, so we each put in about $15,000, which was basically all the money that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, we, we put it in there and we, and we rented it out for about $700 or $675 a month, something like that, um, which was a pretty good return, right? I mean, by today's standards, it would be very difficult to find that kind of return. But that was the bottom of the market. So it helped. And we actually still own that now. That property... Um, in 2010, we, you know, we paid 30,000 for it. in 2006, it was probably worth, you know, maybe a hundred thousand. And now it's probably, a, you know, 120, $130,000 mm-hmm. property. So the return on that has been amazing over time. But, but the, the hard part was just, just taking that leap of faith on the first deal. Right. And once we did one deal, then we had a little bit of credibility and it gave us a little bit more opportunity so mm-hmm. that we could go. Um, and when another property came up in that same building, uh, we were able to buy that. And in that case, my friend actually loaned loaned me some of the money to buy it at the time uh, because he thought, well, we ha- we're already own one in this building. Like, let's own, let's own it together and we'll both own in that building. And so I borrowed from him uh, and then uh, eventually paid him back that out of my wages. Um, Is that, and, if, if, if I might uh, have a, pose you a quick question between. Sure. Um, is that also then, did you also do it in the in the way that you went and got a, an appraisal by a bank um, after the appreciation, and then you refinanced that one, and then you financed another one, or is that not a method you you? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I like that method. Um, I have done that on other properties since those two properties. Actually, what we did because we wanted to move quickly, and remember, this is the bottom of the recession. Uh, in the U.S. and so it was in worldwide, I think as well. Um, 2010, we had these two paid-off condos, and we actually went to a um, another investor friend of ours, and we said, "Hey, we've got these two condos, and we have this other deal we want to buy. Why don't you loan us money on each condo?" And I think it was like twenty thousand dollars on each condo, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and and he put a mortgage on the condos, and we had this forty thousand dollars, and then he took another twenty thousand um, dollars of his own. And we started a, a new company that we partnered with him and we each put in $20,000. So we mm-hmm. took our mortgage money and we put it into this new company. And then he put in another 20,000 and we used that to buy another deal. So in a way we did that, but we didn't go get appraisals and go through traditional bank financing. Um, partly because it wasn't really available then partly because mm-hmm. of my own credit situation, having just filed bankruptcy six or so months before that. Um, 
and then and partly just because you know the other investor you know was ready and willing to do it mm-hmm. uh, and so that's that's how we started and then after that we just started we really liked that model so we started um uh, approaching other people we knew that had some money and having them uh, sort of loan money to a company that we started uh, in order to buy stuff. And so we were doing a lot of private money stuff for the first few years. Got it. Okay. Um, how about cash flow of, of those, those properties? How does that work? How do you maintain and make sure that you're always cash flow positive when you're investing? What do I have to take care of? And maybe what are also some metrics you're taking into account when deciding on a property? I know I'm asking a lot of questions right now, but, Uh, you know, maybe you can get us through. Sure. No, well, so when we first started, what we were doing is we were um, doing more like back of the napkin kind of calculations. Mm -hmm. We're saying, okay, how much is the rent going to be? And what do we think the expenses are? And, well, we do it a little bit more sophisticated now because we use some Excel modeling and stuff like that. Um, We're still basically doing that. You're looking at the total rent that you expect. uh, And then... Um, reducing that by a vacancy uh, factor, which is going to depend on the market. But for, you know, these condos are fairly nice condos. Uh, They're small, but they're in a decent area. Um, We figured, you know, like we would have like 5% vacancy on average. So we would take like, you know, the rent, say just to make it easy, say it was $10,000 a year, we would Mm -hmm. say, okay, we're really only going to collect $9,500 a year, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have this vacancy factor. Uh, And then we put in the the different costs like for taxes and insurance. And if there was a mortgage payment, we put in the mortgage payment. And so we put in all of this information, uh, maintenance, uh, capital expenditures, um, and we just made some guesses on those. Like we think that this house is going to need a new roof once every 30 years, it's going to cost $6,000. So we'll divide that by 30 years. And that's how much we have to put away a year to, you know, to make that. And then a little bit of a reserve on top of that to be safe. Right. Um, And then, we just plugged it in, right? So here's the total amount of income. Mm-hmm. Here's the total expenses. This is what it has left over. Uh, and we were targeting uh, $200 per door at the time. Just if it made $200, then we were okay with it. Okay. Um, and, and there you're also um, calculating the um, cost of capital for the bank loan or the mortgage. You're also, in, uh, you're also making sure, sure. that uh, this one is also calculated. Yeah. So, I mean, we were putting that into that, into that expenses. That's how we started it. Right. We were just like, if the, and in that case, you know, we didn't have a mortgage, so it was easier. Right. But once you have a bank loan, you're just going to look at it and say, okay, uh, I need, you know, my payment's going to be $500 a month. Uh, and my income is a thousand. So half of the money is already gone to pay the bank. And then, you know, add the rest of the expenses in and make sure I still have enough margin. I call it the spread, right? The spread mm-hmm. is really how much money you have left uh, after you pay everything that you have to pay. Um, and and if the spread is big enough, then it's it's okay. Yeah. And the bigger the spread, the safer the deal. Um, um, the duration of the term of the, of the mortgage, is it for you important to say, no, I definitely I never want to have like a mortgage which is, longer than 10 years or do you try to extend it for as long as possible in order to get like maybe a better interest rate um what's your what's your opinion there and what's the decision process there so it depends a lot on what your goals are right some people their goal is they want to retire in 10 years and and they uh you know they just want to you know they don't care if their real estate gives them any money right now. Right. They're just like, I want it to be paid off when I'm ready to retire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then it makes good sense to have a shorter term. 
um, your payments will be higher, which will reduce your spread, right? We're talking about the spread, obviously higher payments, less, less money to, to pay for cash flow. I'm more of a cash flow guy because I didn't want to wait 10 years to retire. I wanted to retire as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and now that I don't have a job, like it's like, how much cash is this thing going to put in my pocket? Like I look at how much money do I have to put down? Like, you know, what, what's coming out of my pocket and how much am I getting back? Like mm -hmm. I almost look at it as the cash on cash return as like rent on my cash. Like this is what I'm getting paid for giving up this cash. Um, and so uh, I think for me, I, I actually prefer longer terms uh, because it increases the spread. And I even really prefer interest only if possible. So like if someone will say, you know, it's 6% interest only on $100,000 is $6,000 a year. Um, if I have interest, if I have a $100,000 loan that's amortized over 10 years, even at like a couple of percent, my payment's going to be more than $6,000 a year because it's 10,000 has to be paid off every year just to get to paying off the loan over a 10 year period. So, okay. um, so I'm always looking at, you know, um, you know, what that, what that loan payment is. It's, it's, it's really a loan constant. So it's just like the amount of dollars per thousand dollars of loan that you have to pay. And you also, um, I assume with 150 plus uh, properties, you have like an uh, facility management or administration, which, which is taking care of that one. You also, sure. You also count that one in the calculation, I assume. Oh, yeah, of course. So um, each property is a little different. But even if you were going to manage it yourself, I always tell people, build in a number for property management. Look at what the local market is. It might be six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% of the rents. Put that right into there, even if you're going to do it yourself, because you don't know, you know, you might be okay doing it when you have one or two properties. But if you want to have 180 different units, you're not going to do it yourself unless you start a company to do it, right? Yeah. And some people do that. They would rather just keep the control and there's nothing wrong with that. But even then, that company needs to be paid. It needs to pay its overhead. It needs to pay for its employees. So you're going to eventually have property management costs. Yeah. And it's, very, it's a very big mistake to ignore that. Um, because in the example I was giving you where you're making $200 a month, if your property management cost is $150 a month, you're not really making $200 a month. You're just, if you're doing it yourself and you're only having $200 in cash flow, really, you're, it puts you in a position where you're limiting yourself because you're choosing to take your time to make that money, the extra $150. Nothing wrong with that. But you can only do so much of that. And yep. then you can't grow beyond a certain point. You have you just mentioned the roof for six thousand to make sure that you have like that one in your pocket in order to to be safe if something happens. Do you have like a rule of thumb to say like X Y Z percentage of the property value should definitely be like on in your free cash flow on, or in your pocket yeah. to to make sure that you can like do some I don't know like decent repairs or maybe some urgent repairs. Yeah, so for me, I don't think it's a percentage of the value. It's really a percentage of the um, it's, it's almost, it's almost decided by the type of property that you have. So if you have like a, um, an apartment building and a roof is going to be, you know, a hundred thousand dollars cause it's a big building, right. Mm -hmm. Then, then, yeah, I mean, you're going to need to have a lot more cash on hand because if you do need a new roof next month, like you need to have that hundred thousand dollars or a way mm -hmm. to get a hold of it. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's not really percentage based. If your apartment building is worth, 200,000 and the roof costs a hundred, you're going to need to have a lot more reserve on that $200,000 investment, right? Than than if it's a 2 million or $20 million apartment that has a hundred thousand dollar roof. So I look at um, kind of like um, 
when I'm modeling this stuff, I think five to 10%, depending on what market you're in, like if it's, um, you know, and depending on what asset class you're in, pretty good amount to put away on a monthly basis to sort of build a CapEx reserve. But uh, you need to have a starting reserve that's, that's sufficient to cover any reasonably foreseeable problems, Um, which, you know, that's going to be like, if you look at the roof when you buy it and it's brand new, you probably don't need to have all the money for a brand new roof, right? But if your roof is already 25 years old and it's a 30-year roof, it might be that you need to replace it six months from now because Mm -hmm. 30 years doesn't mean it's going to last exactly 30 years. So so you kind of have to determine it on a per property basis. If it's a brand new building, you need less money in cash than if it's a a much older building. Got it, got it. How's your approach concerning uh, proactively investing in order to increase the appreciation or the valuation of a property? Um, Do you also suggest like real estate investors they like definitely like, you know, try to also maximize the the rent by investing into, I don't know, like, you know, the sink or bathroom or whatever have you. How's your approach to that? Um, yeah, so uh, it all it depends a lot on the what your goal is for the property. So mm-hmm. with our multifamily properties, um, the value is heavily determined by the net operating income. So if you have more rent um, and less expenses, then that net operating income goes higher. The higher that is, the more the property is worth. So for us, we're very aware of what that relationship is. So uh, just to give you an example, um, if a property uh, generates a hundred thousand dollars a year, and that um, and the market thinks that you know maybe we're in a uh, just to make the math e- easy, we'll say we're in a five percent cap rate market, which means that a hundred thousand dollar a year property is worth two million dollars in that market. If we were to increase the net operating income by a thousand dollars, then we could take that $1,000 and divide it by the cap rate, that 5%, and that's how much extra equity we've gotten. So if an improvement costs us $5,000 to do, and we know that we're going to be able to raise the rent such that we get an extra $1,000 a year in that operating income, we can just do the math and say mm-hmm. $1,000 in extra income adds $20,000 in value. It costs us $5,000 to do it, so it's a good investment. Okay. Um, and so I'm always looking at it that way. And I'm always telling my property managers when they're talking to me, well, we need to um, put new windows in, let's say. And then the question is like, okay, is it going to save us money or is it going to give us more rent? If it's not going to save money and not give us rent, then it's a question of whether it's something we, we necessarily have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean, obviously, if someone doesn't have hot water or heat, uh, you know, or air conditioning in, in the south where I live now in, in Chattanooga, it's very, very hot in the summer. We need to have you know, some way to cool people. Um, you know, if it doesn't have those things, that's necessary. I need to do it no matter what. It doesn't matter if it, what it costs. It doesn't really matter what it adds value-wise. But uh, if it's a non-necessary thing, like say new windows, is it going to save me money? And it might, right? If if it saves on utility bills, then it's it could be a good idea. Um, or am I going to be able to charge more rent because people say, oh, this is great. I have new windows. And the answer in a lot of times is yes, you can charge more rent and it might save you money. Um, but then you just figure out how much extra rent am I going to get? How much is it going to save me? What is that going to add to my net operating income? Do that math problem, divide it by the capitalization rate, what people are willing to pay for that extra income, mm-hmm. and uh, and then subtract out what it costs to do it and see if it's a net gain for you on, a, on an equity basis. 
is the is it almost always necessary in order to get like a higher rent to have a turnover within the um, within the um, flat, or do you also can you also increase the rent um, when you say yes, I just invested like into to the property itself? How's the regulation there? Uh, so it, uh, the regulations, not, I mean, if you have a lease with people, so you have a contract to keep the rent at a certain rate, um, in, at least in Chattanooga and in, in Michigan, um, you know, you, you can, as long as you follow the terms of the contract, it's fine. Um, there are some limitations on like late fees and security deposits and how much you can charge on that stuff. But, um, but as far as like just going out and like raising rents in the middle of a lease, it's very difficult to do that. So you do have to have some kind of turn. But I will tell you that sometimes you have a tenant that's lived there. The lease term might be a year. And then after a year, it's, it's sort of month to month. Um, you might have a tenant that's been there for 18 months, two years. And you might say to them, hey, um, we're going to have to raise your rent. But we're also going to come in and like, you know, repaint your bathroom and like put in new flooring or something or clean your carpets. Um, and, and that sort of helps them feel better about the rent increase that you're giving them. Um, and so sometimes you can do that with existing tenants. But the great part about multifamily is that most people, at least in the United States, don't live in the same apartment for you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So as a result of that, you have a lot of turnover and turnover gives you opportunities to um, reset to market rents because it is difficult to raise rents on people that have been there for a long time. Even if you're not prohibited from it, if you go to someone whose rent is maybe $700 a month and say, your rent's going to $950 a month, they're going to move. You're going to end up with turnover, right? They're just going to say, you know, screw you. I'm not doing that or whatever. So absolutely, no, it makes total sense, and I really like the idea of the multi-family apartment um, approach. That you're obviously you're spreading the risk among like a lot of units, and then also you have the you're also having a turnover, which is definitely higher than than in different um, kind of property. Yeah, and when you have one unit, like if you buy a single family house, you really don't want turnover because turnover costs are very expensive. Yeah. If you're if it takes you a month to re-rent it, you lose one twelfth of your total revenue for the year, right? That's that's significant. Yeah. But if you have a big building with you know 20, 30 units in it, if you have turnover, what it does is one, you have processes in place to keep your churn time down. So it doesn't take you a month or two to re-rent it. Um, because you have someone on site maybe that that does the turnovers and they know exactly what you want. It's the same for each unit. You're going to go in and paint and whatever, right? Okay. Um, so your turn time might be measured in days instead of weeks or months. So you keep that cost down. But also, if one unit is empty for a month, it's one thirtieth of the of the rent for that month, right? Okay. And and for the year, it's a much smaller percentage. So getting a little bit of turn cost there, it's it's mitigated by the remaining rents. And, and you've kind of built it into your model so it doesn't upset you. You know, like I said, when you, when you plan, you might say, hey, I'm going to have 5% vacancy or 7 or whatever. And so you kind of, when you determine your net operating income you're in what you think you're willing to pay for that property when you bought it, you're already planning on having some downtime, uh, which, it, which makes it a lot easier to, uh, to budget for it. So, You're also in uh, commercial real estate. Um, isn't that like the bulk risk isn't that much higher because you have like also like on one end the value is much higher but then on the other end you most probably have like one tenant as well only um what's the approach there and what's uh, tell me a little bit about that one sure so um yeah the commercial stuff like 
uh, for the last, you know, five years or so, it's been very attractive because the market's been very, very strong um, and cap rates have been pretty low, which means that just little increases in rent add a tremendous amount of equity. Um, and a lot of times commercial tenants will sign a five-year lease. So it's very predictable, five, mm -hmm. 10 years. Um, and they'll have these rent increases built in. So you can kind of look at it and say, hey, I know that five years from now, this rent is going to have gone up five, 10% for sure. And I don't even have to think about it. It's also very easy to manage because of that. If you have one tenant um, and they're a business, they just pay the rent. And you know, a lot of times they're responsible for all of their interior repairs and sometimes even all the repairs, mm -hmm. depending on the term of the lease and, and what kind of lease you're dealing with. So it can be very easy to manage. But um, the flip side is there is a bit more risk. And a lot of times people forget about that. When everything's going good, it's super easy. Mm -hmm. But if you have a vacancy, it could last six months or a year or two years. Uh, and you have to be prepared to not have any income, right? It's back to the single family house. If you have a single family house and it's vacant, it, it can destroy your cash flow immediately. Same with a multi, uh, you know, with a single unit commercial building. Now, a lot of commercial buildings are, um, you know, like a neighborhood community centers where they have five, 10 stores in them. Uh, or maybe it's an office building with, mm -hmm. you know, seven or eight or 10 or 20 offices in it. Those are a little bit different. Obviously, they have a little bit less risk, but they also tend to um, still be much harder to fill vacancies. If you have an apartment that's empty and it doesn't rent in a couple of weeks, it's because you're charging too much rent. And you, can, and you know that you can just lower the rent and it'll, it'll rent. Uh, with an office building, it, does, it might not matter what the rent is. If there's no demand for that particular size or location, uh, then you could change the rent to almost free and no one's going to move in. Right. Yeah. So, um, so like we have on our, um, we have a, a neighborhood community center that uh, it's got a grocery store in it and it has a bookstore and it has um, like a, uh, like a uh, workout facility in it. Mm -hmm. And those are really good, but there's a couple of spaces that were vacant for about almost, almost a year and a half um, to get them filled. And we re mm -hmm. recently got them filled and we're very excited about that. And then this uh, coronavirus thing happened and we'll see, right? That's a sort of an unknown risk. Uh, yeah. if, if the gym, you know, the workout facility that's there, they're, they're not doing anything right now. They can't, they're, they're actually legally prohibited from doing anything. Um, and, you know, I suspect they're not going to be able to pay their rent. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know that for sure, but I suspect that will be the case. And if this is shut down for m multiple months, then, you know, that could get very bad very fast. Yeah. Um, and that's a level of risk that I don't think you have in residential. I mean, even when we're shut down, people still need to live somewhere. Yeah. They might not be able to pay their rent, but there's a lot of, you know, assistance type programs and stuff that are coming out that'll help with that. And also, um, you know, they want, they don't want us to kick people out. Right. I yeah. mean, this is, this is a, this is such an unprecedented situation that there's a lot of stimulus going to help so that we don't have to, you know, be doing oh. that. How do you see the coronavirus situation right now? What's your, I mean, obviously it's daily, we get like new news and we, I think like all of us, we really can assume how it's going to happen, what's going to happen and stuff. Um, have you talked to other uh, people in the real estate uh, industry and uh, what's your feeling right now and what's your opinion right, right now? How, how is everything going to be evol uh, evolving? 
So, um, yeah, I have talked to a lot of people. Actually, we've done a couple of panel discussions on that, and I've been on a couple other people's panels. So I've heard a lot of different opinions. Um, my feeling right now is it's uh, it's really like looking into the event horizon of a black hole. Like, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all on this in the same situation where we don't know what's going to happen. Now, I there's some information developing daily. I'm not a medical expert, so I can't really properly evaluate all of that. It appears to me that, um, you know, we're maybe a few weeks to a few months at the longest away from sort of a peak infection rate in most Mm -hmm. countries. Um, And then it will start, you know, moving back towards some kind of normalcy. I think we're at least a year to 18 months away from um, really not having to worry about it. And that's the best case scenario. Um, Because we have to get to... um, uh, you know, sort of herd immunity, right? This is a novel virus that no one has natural uh, defenses to. Um, and we have to get to the point where enough people have been exposed to it, um, either through vaccines or through just having gotten the disease that um, that it can't spread like wildfire, right? It's a little bit like, um, uh, it's a little bit like, you know, if you light a match to really mm-hmm. dry straw, right? It's just going to go like crazy. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, if, if, if you, pour water on it, it will slow it down, but it won't stop it unless you pour a lot of water on it mm-hmm. or you get a lot of natural moisture. And that's kind of how I think about herd immunity. It's like people that have already had this disease purportedly can't get it again. If that's the case, the more people that have had it, the harder it becomes to spread. Um, and then of course, vaccines can accelerate that dramatically. So hopefully they come out with a vaccine super fast, but everything I read says that's at least a year away. Um, and so I think we're going to be dealing with sort of rolling um, uh, restrictions. You know, we we might loosen up a little bit and people might start going back to work and then we'll have a resurgence and then we'll have to lock stuff down a little bit again. And and, no, and as far as I know, no countries have really released the restrictions enough to know how much that's mm-hmm. going to be. China is sort of at the beginning of the of the lightning of restrictions. Yeah. But, uh, you know, once they do that, um, we probably will see some kind of resurgence. Hopefully the that's mitigated by summer weather. Like the flu tends to go away because it doesn't do well in hot mm-hmm. weather. But, um, you know, it might not be. And if it even if it is, we're still going to see the fall uh, where it's going to start coming back again, you yeah. know, in these different places. So what do you right now hold back to new investments? Do you just observe? What is your right now... So, yeah, so we, um, two, two weeks ago, we bought a 16 unit building in uh, North Georgia. It's kind of close to Chattanooga, um, but it's in a different state. Um, but it's a market I'm pretty familiar with, but we had been working on that for several months beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as evaluating brand new stuff, I'm being very, very careful because I just don't know what's going to happen. So we're putting in, um, into the agreements, we're asking for what we call like a COVID-19 contingency that basically says that we have the right to walk away anytime in the next 60 days if we feel that the uh, virus situation's not uh, under control. Mm-hmm. And it's completely our discretion, right? Um, and if people don't agree to that, then we just, we're just going to wait. You know, they can sell to someone else if they want, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not willing to take the risk without knowing. And it might very well be that 60 days from now, I'm going to go back to some of these people and say, I don't know. I have to either walk away or you need to give me more time to decide. Um, And, you know, it is what it is. So we're definitely putting the brakes on, you know, running out and buying a whole bunch of stuff. Now, on the other hand, um, we have looked at a couple of deals that are just such a good deal that it's hard to justify um, walking away from them. 
Um, but there's a ton more risk right now, so it has to be a very good deal before it makes sense. I just talked to Carlos from Mexico, and he said, you know, right now there's so many nice opportunities um, in the market because you see like a lot of discounts as well. Have you seen or experienced any uh, already any first signs on tremendous discounts on uh, valuations? Yeah, so you know the economy in the U.S. until a couple of weeks ago was insanely good. Um, and so we haven't seen, we, we and the market's really slow to respond to this stuff. You know, I don't know how it works in every country, but in the U.S., um, closings take a while, right? I mean, I think that's true everywhere. You know, mm -hmm. if you go from contract to closing, so the stuff that's that's closing now is primarily stuff that was under contract already. Mm -hmm. And what we are seeing is some people are walking away from those contracts and saying, "I'm I'm not going to go mm -hmm. forward with this deal because I don't know what's happening." which puts downward pressure on the market. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And um, circumstantially, I've heard of a few people that were thinking of selling um, that have now chosen that they want to sell and they're willing to take less than what they were originally thinking. Um, so I do think there is some, some bargain starting to appear. I just think we're probably three weeks to a few months away from really seeing real impact in the yeah. pricing because it's just so soon. Got it, got it. No, it makes, makes little sense to me. Um, may I ask you a question back to the technical terms? Um, you mentioned net profit, you mentioned cap rate, you mentioned the return on investment. For me, as a first-time first real estate investor, what are the metrics which I have to take care of the most? And maybe you can give us an overview of the most important metrics you you might have already mentioned them sure was like to to really get like a hold on like a quick let's say real estate investment introductory course to someone who is totally new to it what do you think is like the most important thing to know okay so um that's a super broad ca category yeah. <laughs> i'll do my best though so the first thing i think is what i said at the beginning about the spread the difference between all of your expenses and your um, projected rent. Uh, I think that's super, super important because at the end of the day, you can buy a lot of properties um, that cash flow positive that, and, and not get into trouble, right? So as mm -hmm. long as you're very conservative in how you can project your expenses and your income um, and you have a, a difference between the two that's positive uh, and you kind of stress test it against well, what happens if rents go down? What does that look like? Um, and you kind of make those kind of choices. As long as you do that, it's hard to mess up because it's super forgiving. Even if you overpay or you don't have a very good cash on cash return, if you're still, it's still paying itself off over time, right? And it's still, um, you know, giving you ca more cash every month than it costs you. Uh, it's hard. I mean, you can just keep it forever, right? I mean, eventually it will probably go up. And even if it doesn't, it will pay itself off. And then the cash flow will go up at that time when the debt goes away. Um, so it, that's the most important thing to me is how much cash is it actually giving me every, every week, every month, uh, every year. Because if you, um, if you have something that takes money from you every month, you're going to run out of money. I mean... Even if you can afford it, say you have a good job and you say, you know, I don't mind if I lose a thousand dollars a month on this deal. Um, and, and I think at some point in the future, it might be worth more. So I'm happy to pay this thousand dollars a month. That's fine. And it might be a good investment strategy for some people. Um, if they're speculating on the value going up over time, uh, I think it's a bit risky. 
but uh, for some people that's a risk they're willing to take, but you can still only do so many of them. Even if you have a really good job and you can lose $1,000 a month on one property uh, and be fine, you probably can't lose $1,000 a month on 10 properties or 20 or 30 properties. So if you look at that spread and it's positive though, if you overpaid, it's okay because you're still getting more money every yeah. month than you started with, right? So, uh, and to me, um, when I was trying to grow, and this sort of ties into a question you asked earlier, I was thinking about it like, okay, how much money do I need every month to pay all of my bills? Mm -hmm. And then if I get $200, which is what I was targeting at the time, $200 per door, per property, whatever it is, um, per month in cash flow to myself, um, how many properties do I need to pay all of my bills? That was the number I was most concerned with, right? So say I needed $10,000 a month to be really comfortable and happy, right? I would just take 10,000, I would divide it by 200. Yep. And I would say, that's how many properties I need to be comfortable. Makes, makes, and, makes total sense. So you definitely say like the most important metric is cash flow, is monthly cash flow to get them. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think. No, there's a lot of other ones that are super useful and super helpful as you grow um, and accelerating your returns. Uh, things like cash on cash, right? Because, you know, if you want to make $1,000 a month in cash flow and you have a property that you can buy with $1,000 down that makes $1,000, you know, maybe you put it, they got some really good loan terms or something yeah. and it's a really great deal. That's a really good return on your cash, right? You put $1,000 in and it makes $12,000 a year. It's a, you know, insane cash flow. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you have to pay $20 million uh, in cash, right, to get $1,000 a month cash flow, it's not a very good return. Yeah. So cash flow is important, but um, the amount of cash that you have to put into the deal to get that cash flow, that's probably the second most important element to look at, that cash yeah. on cash return, which is really just calculated with how much money do I put in now and then how much do I get per year? Yeah. And it's just a, a ratio. Yeah, got it. Um, in your presentation, um, in your speech, you showed the market cycle curve where you show sure. more or less like the average demand or the average, I think, housing price or uh, let price, which I have to pay on average for um, for the rent, and then how much it is up and, and below the this curve. Um, you're much better in explaining that. Sure. Can you give us uh, your, your, your take on that and what is it exactly? Okay, so um, I want to put a quick disclaimer here and say that this is heavily dependent on the market that you're looking at, right? Mm -hmm. So every market is a little bit different. But in general, I think these principles do apply. That's the first disclaimer. The second one is, I have no idea how this is going to work in this sort of uh, post-COVID world, mm -hmm. but it should still work. It's just going to be really hard to get good data for a little while, right? Because mm -hmm. we just don't know. So the data that you're looking at when you're looking at market cycle is, is really only two things. One is, um, what is the long-term average occupancy in that particular uh, market? So I look at um, the, the horizontal line is um, the average long-term occupancy for that market. And you're going to get this over a long period of time. So like, say you're looking at apartment buildings in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which obviously is the thing I look at, right? So I'm looking at apartment buildings in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm saying, what is the average occupancy for an apartment building in Chattanooga over the last 30, 40, 50 years? Not mm -hmm. like over the last 
two years. It has to be this long-term number because we're looking at long-term market cycles and the markets move very, very slowly in most cases. Now the COVID thing might accelerate that dramatically, which is gonna make it a little bit trickier in the short term to predict this stuff. But you can still look at the average occupancy and uh, let's just say average occupancy in your market is 95%. So most of the time, you know, 95 out of 100 apartments are filled. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can look at that number and you can say, okay, am I above or below long-term average occupancy right now? And I can go and look at, okay, what's occupancy now? It's, it's currently 97%. Great. It's above long-term average occupancy. Um, and that's that's a really good sign. That means the market's very healthy. Um, and what you're going to look at then is the next thing you want to look at is the direction that occupancy is going. So if you can look at today's occupancy and you can look at like last quarter and the quarter before's occupancy, then you can say, okay, it was 96.5% last you know, two months ago, and now it's 97. So it's going up, or it was 97 and a half two months ago. Now it's 97. It's going down. Mm -hmm. So if you know the direction of occupancy, um, and you know, the long term historical averages, you can actually pinpoint with a relative amount of accuracy where you are in the market cycle. And there's really just four uh, phases. The first phase is, uh, you know, recovery. Um, the second phase is expansion. The third phase is hyper supply, and then the fourth phase is recession. And really, what's happening there is if you're above average occupancy, you're either in expansion or hyper supply. Um, and in the way you know which one you're in is if your occupancy is going up, you're in expansion. If your occupancy is going down, there's more supply coming online than um, is being absorbed by the market, you're in hyper supply. And then if you're below average occupancy and and occupancy still falling, that's the worst place in the market, right? Mm -hmm. That's occupancies going down and you're below average occupancy rates, that's recession. That's what recession looks like. And then recovery is you're below average occupancy, but occupancy levels are going up, right? More people are renting than, than new supplies coming on the market. And, and if you know those four things, what you really wanna do is you wanna buy heavily when you're in recovery because that's when prices are low and people are scared. Um, but it's also when you're starting to move to expansion. And uh, once you cross over that average occupancy, then prices start going up, rents start going up, and then people start wanting to buy again. Um, and that's a good time to buy too. Nothing wrong with that. Then you get into hyper supply, right? Now people are building new apartment complexes because, uh, because rents have been going up for a few years. Um, when that happens, um, Occupancy starts falling, but it's still above that long-term historical occupancy level. So rents are still going up. People are still excited. They're still building new buildings. Um, that's kind of when you want to get out, right? I mean, because you want to like look at it and say, hey, you know what? Prices are up. Rents are up. Uh, but I think occupancy is starting to fall, which means we're moving towards recession. And in most markets that I'm familiar with, in the U.S. at least, um, that's where we've been, that hyper supply, at least for apartments. Uh, or or at the end of expansion where it's slowing down. We're in both one or the other in almost all markets in the U.S. Uh, before the COVID thing. The COVID thing is, uh, I don't know, it could reset the market. It could, it could shove us back into expansion uh, mm -hmm. or even into recovery uh, because we've fallen so fast so far. Um, or it could um, push us over to recession. I'm not really sure what's going to happen mm -hmm. with that. Um, but I do know that... Um, Six months from now, we'll be able to track occupancy and we'll know if it's going up or down and we'll be able to pinpoint where we are in the market. And what tool do you use specifically? 
go to uh, is there a dashboard you can access online or how does that work yeah it's very difficult to get good data so it's going to depend on the market and and okay. again this is um it's really uh, market dependent. So I was using the example of apartments in Chattanooga, but the market in Chattanooga isn't even just a market. It's apartments in Chattanooga versus office buildings in Chattanooga, right? Mm -hmm. Versus single family houses in Chattanooga. But it's also apartments in New York versus apartments in Chattanooga, right? So if you want to buy, I saw you had an episode on, on the Philippines, right? So if you want to buy an a single family residence in the Philippines, it's going to be a significantly different market yeah. than apartments in Chattanooga. So you have to find data based on your own market. In the United States, in the major metropolitan areas, there are services that, that, that track this stuff and you can pay for it. And then some of them actually release the data like a, a quarter or two behind for free to kind of get you to see what kind of stuff they're doing. So I would look for something like that in your market. Um, okay. And I can't really, I mean, it's hard oh, for me to say, but, but you know, you, which, what, what the actual source for each market is, because no. you have a, you know, an international audience. So it oh, makes, makes total sense. Oh, I, I just want to know, like, okay, you yourself, you, I, I guess you watch or you look at, at it like once a month to uh, at, at those data points to make sure like you're on top of it and can then also act accordingly. Because I assume if you're in the right situation right now, or at any time you say, okay, hey, let's sell this apartment block or let's let's sell this flat because we're definitely like right now at the stage of it. Yeah. So there's another thing that I think about with this too, right? So it matters more in um, property that you're not planning on keeping for the long term mm -hmm. because the market doesn't go up and then down and back to the same price. Generally goes up and down some, and then up to a higher price, and then down some, and then up to a higher price. So mm -hmm. if you buy an apartment building and it, and you have that healthy spread that I was talking about, right? So you have nice cash flow, and you you feel good about your cash on cash return. Um, you might not care what the value of the apartment mm -hmm. building is, right? You might pay a million dollars for a building, and it might only be worth eight hundred thousand two years from now, but. 10 years from now, it might be worth a million five, right? Yeah. So if you aren't planning on selling in the next year, two, three years, uh, it probably doesn't matter that much as long as you can weather whatever, you know, occupancy issues you have. Because the one thing about the market cycle that's important is if occupancy levels are going down, right? Um, and you don't, and you know that they're going to go below average and you underwrote your deal thinking you're going to have 95% occupancy, but you're looking at the last several market cycles and you saw that, in your market, it went down to 90% uh, or 85% or mm -hmm. something. Um, then, and you can, and you don't have enough spread to cover that loss of rent, then uh, you might want to sell then too, right? Because you don't want to like, yeah. uh, you don't want to worry about it. But if you have a healthy spread and you, you've stress tested it to, you know, we always try to say, okay, what does it look like if we're at 75% occupancy or 70%? Um, how much would we make then? And if it's mm -hmm. still positive, even if it's just a tiny bit, then I feel pretty good because yeah. I don't think occupancy is going lower than that. And yeah. no, I don't know, right? I mean, listen, if um, we had a global pandemic that I wasn't predicting, right, which is who was, and it killed, you know, 20% of the world's population, which I don't think is going to happen here, right? I mean, I, I'm not seeing any projections like that. But if that happened, occupancy is going to go down dramatically. And then I but then we, knows, have, right? we have different problems. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, you can't predict for stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I only can predict for stuff that I, that's within the realm of what I've yeah. seen happen, and then I try to be really conservative and give myself a margin of safety above what I think realistically could happen. It, it it makes total sense, and you know, 
what boils down to is like once the economics makes sense at the moment you're purchasing the the real estate then you shouldn't even care that much about the market price of that uh, property during fluctuations once your cash flow remains the same so you know because that's right the calculation is like at, at, at one the one situation at the when you buy and that's that's more or less it um yeah, I mean, and they go up over time, typically, right? So exactly. if you if you bought today um, and your rents were averaging, you know, seven hundred fifty dollars a month or eight hundred dollars a month, um, you would expect that five years from now rents would be higher than that. And that's mm -hmm. not always the case, but they tend not to go down, right? They might go down for a short period during a recession, but they tend to go up over time. And your expenses uh, also go up, but it's usually percentage based. So like. Yeah. If rents go up 3%, expenses might go up 3% also, which means that from a practical perspective, your net operating income actually increases more because what happens is say your expenses are 10,000 a month and your income is 20,000 a month. Uh, if, if your income goes up 3%, $600, yeah. your expenses go up 3%, it's $300. So you have this extra $300 a month yeah. uh, in the spread. So it just keeps going up over time. So from a long-term buy and hold perspective, that's great. And then the other thing that happens too is the part, a big chunk of your expenses doesn't go up at all. And that's your, your loan payment, right? Cause mm -hmm. it's usually fixed for a period of time, which means that even if your expenses go up uh, faster than your income by a little bit, the fact that your big expense stays the same offsets that. And you actually end up with an even bigger spread because of that. So. Got it. If you, let's say, you take the next second step, you're not the first time we're sitting this anymore, and you have, um, I don't know, like let's say five to 10 properties, how would you say, maybe it's also market-based, so I don't know if it's a good question, but I'm tr just trying it to, to figure that out. How would you say is a good portfolio, commercial versus multifamily, multifamily versus flats versus, I don't know, maybe land, I don't know. Um, do you have any, let's say, um, rule of thumb, which you would say definitely try to diversify towards that direction? So well, we've only recently started diversifying out of multifamily and out of, uh, out of residential stuff in general. Um, but what I think is um, you're buying cash flow. You actually probably shouldn't care where that cash flow comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so if you're looking at the deals and you're seeing that in your market, um, that single family houses on the beach are the best return on money, then that's what you should buy, right? Okay. But if you're in a market where, um, where you know, maybe that's not the case and, and those are very expensive, then you need to be buying other stuff because what you're really going to look at is how much cash flow are you okay. getting for the money you're investing and, um, and then controlling it for risk. And that's where the diversification becomes important, right? If you have 10 properties and they're all beach houses, it's probably okay. Um, but if they were all Airbnbs and then the coronavirus comes and now no one's traveling, it can be really painful. So that's where having um, some apartments mixed in with your Airbnbs and short-term rentals might make good sense, right? Um, and so diversifying across markets and diversifying across um, different property types can be very, very valuable as you grow. But I think that you have a lot more control um, over your ability to process knowledge and understand risk if you have a limited um, investment portfolio. So that yeah. offsets that a lot more than people realize. I always think of risk as a function of, of really three or four things. One is um, you know, how much energy you put into something. So the more knowledge that you have about something, 
Um, the more time of your own personal time and energy you're willing to put into something, the more you're mitigating risk um, and, and lower, lowering risk without necessarily lowering return because it's a risk and return ratio, right? The Generally, more risk equals a higher return, so but true. also uh, more risk means there's a bigger chance that you get zero return or a negative return, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you have to like try to mitigate the risk while still getting into those higher return deals. And you can mitigate risk by lowering um, your return. But the best thing to do, in my opinion, is to mitigate risk by staying on top of what you're doing and and getting a lot of knowledge about what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. watching uh, and listening to your show is going to be a great way to mitigate risk, right? Um, Watching and listening to my show is a great way Mm -hmm. to mitigate risk because you're gaining knowledge. But another way to mitigate risk is um, to have multiple properties that you, I mean, every time you buy a property and run that property, you're going to learn about that market. Mm -hmm. So if you have 10 properties in the same market, um, you have less risk than someone that has one property in that market. Even though you can't control the market risk, you can mitigate the remaining risk by having better knowledge and involvement in that market. So I would say when you have five or 10 properties, you're probably fine to stay all in one market. Uh, If you're going to have um, you know, 100, 200 units in the same market, then it starts to become a question about whether you want to yeah. look at some other markets. And frankly, that's what we did. We bought in Michigan exclusively for the first several years and then started buying in Chattanooga. Picked Chattanooga, not because it's the best market in the world, but because I was familiar with it and I had market knowledge, which mitigated my risk. Um, but it also mitigated my risk by diversifying my portfolio Detroit is 700 miles from Chattanooga. So if something bad happens in Detroit, it doesn't necessarily impact Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in a worldwide pandemic like we are now, uh, that doesn't matter. But Mm -hmm. if if, um, major employers decide to leave Detroit, it can hurt my Detroit real estate, but that's not going to hurt my Chattanooga real estate. So Um, you just mentioned risk. while talking, I, I think like for you, the next step might be also vertically like expanding. Have you thought about like buying land and become a construction, construction company or, uh, you know, employing a construction company and uh, going like, I think because the return on investment of that, if you have the cash, might be even even higher than uh, than uh, only buying existing real estate properties in, quota- in quotation marks. Yeah. So, I mean, so when you're... When we're looking at our investments for long-term buy and holds, we're evaluating it differently than we're evaluating sort of a value add proposition, which is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do two different types of value add stuff. One thing we do is we'll buy rundown apartment buildings and mm-hmm. we'll we'll look at what they're worth now and we'll look at um, what we can do to improve them. And we'll look at like, say, we don't even care if we make money on it the first year because it's all about, you know, fixing up and getting, you know, pouring money into it right in the first year to get it up to a better property. So that's one way to get sort of vertical, um, you know, integration and and get and mitigate risk. And so we do a lot of that already. Um, We have um, looked at development stuff. My one partner um, as a, is a builder by trade. That's what he did. He loves building. Um, And we've been actively looking at deals, but to be honest um, in the Chattanooga market where, where he is and where I am, um, the, we're not confident in the long-term point in the market cycle. That's not to say that we wouldn't do that deal. It's just that it has to be a really good deal and it has to be something we can turn around relatively quickly because we think we're later in the market cycle. Um, And so when you take on um, building projects, 
that's to me um, a completely different risk calculation yeah. than buy and hold. Because if you're, it's just like flipping houses. Like I flip sometimes, yeah. we'll buy something, fix it up and sell it. Well, if we buy something, fix it up, and then we try to sell it and then it can't sell, it's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, and it's a problem, frankly, that doesn't occur in a multifamily because yeah. if I fix it up to, and my plan is to fix it up and sell it in a few years yeah. for profit. If it cash flows still, it doesn't matter. If I can't sell it a few years from now, I can just keep it a few more years. Yeah. It's it's like opening a new restaurant brand versus just taking over one with existing brands. That's of. right. Yeah. Okay. Um you mentioned also in your in your uh, awesome um, presentation uh, passive income uh, income and you also mentioned that uh, you know there's no income because you always somehow invested. Um you yourself how many hours with 150 or 180? Uh, properties are you spending weekly or monthly or can you maybe at least let's say adjust that time and work on, a, on in one week a little bit more and the other week and nothing how, how do you manage all this um, all this sure. all, all this work uh well it's actually way less work than you might think um that's the starting point i mean we have um property managers so you were talking about the, the thing we call the passivity scale um it's something we kind of invented ourselves, but um, basic argument is that you can be more passive, but you can't be completely passive, right? Mm -hmm. So if you hire a property manager, um, you still have to manage your property manager, right? You have to make sure that they're doing their job. And it's a lot easier to do that if you have an understanding of what property managers do. So I always recommend people start out by managing at least one or two of their own properties, mm -hmm. just sort of get a feel for what, what stuff they think is important. Um, and then once they've done that, they're better positioned to manage a property manager. Now, mm -hmm. if you have a good relationship with your property managers, um, the amount of management involved is less. So in my case, um, I've partnered on several deals with, with a property manager that I, that I use up in Detroit and he's a good friend of mine. I trust him a tremendous amount. So on the stuff that we have up in Michigan, uh, yeah, I need to talk to him uh, occasionally about major decisions. Um, and for buying something or we're selling something, we're talking about it. Um, but the day to day stuff he handles completely. Uh, and he might tell me, you know, oh, we had this big problem and I fixed it, but it costs us a lot of money. So I hear about it, but I don't I don't have to. I don't have to stress out about, you know, people calling me at night to fix a toilet or something. And frankly, neither does he because he has staff that handles yeah. that because he manages even more properties than just ours. Um, and it's the same thing in Chattanooga. I've partnered with my property manager. So it's it's mitigated the amount of time I need to spend on it. Yeah. Um, I do have uh, about uh, 10 units or so in Chattanooga that I manage myself. And they take the majority of my management time. Yeah. But in those cases, I have good relationships with my uh, tenants. Uh, they text me if they have a problem, but most months I don't really hear from them. They can pay online. Um, if uh, they don't, I check at the beginning of the month, say, oh, this person hasn't paid. I better see what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but really it's maybe a few hours a week of work mm -hmm. uh, to manage those 10 units and the other ones are maybe another few hours. So for what amounts to, uh, it's close to 200 units now. I might spend you know, five hours a, a week or something working on it. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, it's not too bad. And, uh, and that's a pretty much all that I actually have to do is that mm -hmm. stuff. And I can do it from almost anywhere. Yeah. So I can travel and, uh, and actually when I'm gone, I have a, a person that manages 12 units for me here in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually call him up and say, Hey, uh, I'm going to be gone for the next, you know, several weeks. 
I'm going to text all my tenants and tell them to call you if they have a problem. And then I just pay him for a little bit yeah. to handle it. So That's we're amazing. very efficient in building the, uh, a system that makes it so I don't have to involve myself. Where I do spend my time, though, is in evaluating risk, um, looking at new deals, um, finding new deals, uh, and also, you know, doing the sort of um, educational stuff that I do, like like my show and and um, and just you know networking with people and and getting out there and talking to people and doing this public speaking, like the presentation you're talking about. Um, you know, I just that's where I spend the majority of my yeah. time now is sort of the expansion and you know big picture stuff. Vision and navigating, yeah, perfect. Um, coming back to, a little bit to your personal, uh, your life and also your personal story, since we're also coming a little bit to your to our end, you for you, I I feel that the topic of overcoming anxiety, having this leap of faith, and um, has been a huge element in your in your, especially when you started. Um, what is For you, something you would also like to communicate and give to others as an advice to a life approach, like how to approach life in general, and um, also just to to maybe strive or to to live things which you which you're really passionate about. What's what's your what's your stake there? Yeah, so this is actually the thing that I spend the most of my time thinking about. So I really appreciate this question. So thank you for that. Um, so there's two things that I'm super passionate about, um, and they both revolve around helping people. Um, actually, I would, there's a few other things, but the, the two that I think are most important right now for me, one is I really believe that people, and, I, and maybe this coronavirus thing will actually help with this, but people often um, don't recognize the deals that they're making. Everyone's making deals all the time and people are trading their time for um, a paycheck. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's maybe less bad in some areas of the world, but in the United States, a lot of times people work five days a week, they'll have two days off and they're tired all weekend. Um, or they'll work 50 weeks a year for two weeks of vacation. I think this is a really bad trade. And I really want people to understand that it's not a trade you have to make, right? Mm -hmm. You have to trade time for money on some level because there's, you know, unless you're independently wealthy and just, you know, very lucky. Um, if you want to be successful, you're going to have to figure out a way to get some money. Um, But you don't need as much money as you think, and you don't need to trade your time for money on a one-to-one -one basis. So, so I think that's very important is, is to recognize that you can trade time for money, uh, like be paid by the hour, or you can trade your time for things that are going to produce income over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And you can also trade your money for more income in the future. So if you think about ways to get residual income, um, passive income, if you will, and I'm recognizing that um, that, uh, you can't be completely passive, right. But, uh, but you can be more passive than others. And you can get to a situation where you make a, a reasonable amount of money with very little mm -hmm. commitment of time. And that should be a goal. Uh, and so to me, that's something that's super important is to be constantly framing your decisions based on, um, what is the trade of time I'm making for, for future resources. Yeah. Uh, and so that's super important. And then the second thing, which is even more important to me, is that you need to be happy. Um, it doesn't really matter. If you really like um, going to work every day and you're super happy, you're not really trading time for money. You're really trading um, your time for something you want to do. Uh, and at the end of the day, the money isn't the key. It's that you're doing things that are productive and happy and, and, and healthy. 
so if your goal is to serve people uh, sandwiches, like that's what you've always wanted to do your whole life, then it's okay if you just go to work and make sandwiches for people. If that's really, truly what you are happy doing, and some people are. Uh, some people really actually are happy. I know that sounds weird to most of the people probably watching or listening to the show because those people are probably watching sandwich videos or something, right? They're not yeah, watching yeah. the show. But yeah. but if if you're in a job that you dislike, then it's not a good trade. If you're in a job you like, it's great. So I love real estate. So this is a good deal for me mm -hmm. to spend time talking about real estate. I do it. Um, like I come on here. I don't I don't anticipate making any money from being on your show, but I've been enjoying it. And I, you know, I, I like to be out here and, um, and just talking about real estate and doing real estate related things. But I also have a really strong passion that people should be happy. And I um, personally gave up bad days when I was 17 years old. I just made a decision. I wasn't going to have any more bad days. And it sounds kind of, um, so kind of almost like a magic trick, you know, like it's not something you can really do. But I really do believe that if you tell yourself daily um, through positive affirmations that today is a good day and say things like, I never have bad days, and you just say it over and over again to yourself, say it out loud, say it in your head, doesn't matter. Just keep doing that. Um, if you do it long enough, you'll develop a sort of resilience to bad days. And I haven't had a bad day in a couple of decades now. Um, and bad things have happened to me. I've had to file bankruptcy. I've had, uh, you know, leukemia. Um, you know, I've, I've had family members and friends die. Um, none of that was good, but bad stuff happens to everyone. Um, and good stuff happens to everyone. And if you are relentless in your belief that you only have good days, then you will see the good stuff in everything and you will minimize the bad stuff. And to me, that's more important than being, you know, wealthy. It's more important than whether or not you like real estate or you prefer to make sandwiches. It's just, if you can figure out a way to constantly have a string of good days, your life will be better. Even if once in a while you fail, if you normally have you know, two bad days a week, and you go to only having one bad day a week, your life is significantly better, right? So, um, so if you're skeptical about your ability to completely give up bad days, I would say, well, just try. And if you fail once in a while, it doesn't matter. And eventually, you'll get better at it. And then eventually, hopefully, you won't have bad days anymore. Awesome. I mean, so many, so many nice things you just said, um, you know, getting rid of negativity, uh, stay positive and positivity attracts positivity and vice versa and uh, get rid of unfortunately sometimes even negative people around you you know who just trying to drag you down and make you feel bad and stuff so it's like you know just sometimes also have radical decisions and uh, say uh, you know I'm, i'm just being a happy person because it can be over tomorrow and uh, i think uh, what you say around like i, I feel a pretty much uh, also remember to uh, what Kiyosaki about the cash flow quadrant. I, I assume you, you know that because you know, the way you explain is like, you know, changing or, um, or trading time for, for, for money versus trading money for money. That's the end goal. And that's what you have achieved. It's super interesting to see like that in a, in a, yeah, with a real, a real life case, let's say. Well, I'll tell you that book changed my life. I read it when I was like, um, Well, when it first came out, when I was right out of high school, and um, and I kind of disregarded it, and then I read it again after um, I uh, was when I was in law school, and I started thinking about it more. Um, and then when I started practicing law, I was thinking about it, but I wasn't doing anything. So reading that book and understanding um, cash flow quadrant, but also the rich dad poor dad, yeah. the first book, 
um, those first two are very, very good books and, and reading them has, has impacted my thinking a lot. There's no doubt about it, but you also have to take action. Um, and, um, so those two things combined really make a huge difference in your life. And honestly, I, uh, um, if you had to put me on the spot and say what, what book had the biggest impact in my life, uh, you know, I think as far as business books, it's, it has to be Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have made the steps that I did. And when I got sick, I said, I, I know that the way to do this is to make sure that I have assets. Yeah. I was in the, you know, I was, if you look at the cash flow quadrant, I was in the S quadrant, you know, self-employed. And he always said in there that the problem with being self-employed is that you're still dependent on your own, you're a higher paid employee, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's exactly what happened when I couldn't work. Uh, I didn't have any income. My income dropped off very quickly and I ended up bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would not have happened if I had been investing in businesses and investing in real estate before that. And so I think there's a lot of wisdom to what he says in the cash flow quadrant. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, I would recommend if you haven't read it to get out there and read those books. When you took the second job, you, know, you had the bankruptcy and then took the second, second job and then you had this leap of faith. Um, I think a lot of people know what you say, like in theory, it's, you know, you have to take that leap and, and jump and one day. Did you apply any rule of thumb to say, you know, if I have the runway of six months, if I have, once I have, I don't know, this, this money of cash, or once I have like my side hustle, uh, up and running and I can gener- generate some revenue. What is it that you can give to our audience to say, you know, guys, this is the moment and just then do it to give us like kind of an assistance to say, you know, maybe try sure. to try to align yourself along this path. So if you want to create a side hustle or you want to create a passive income, um, you just have to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Like, I, I'm not, I mean, it's weird, but like at the end of the day, um, you have to decide what your goals are. If your goals are to create a passive or a more passive income from real estate to free up some of your time, then you have to just start doing that. And it, I'm not even sure it really matters when. Real estate is super forgiving over the long term. If you follow the rule of thumbs that I gave you, you know, make sure you have a good spread, uh, a decent cash on cash return, um, the rest of it will actually take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the long time. So for me, I was lucky, right? I, I mean, in a way, I, I didn't have a choice. I, I lost all of my assets. I lost my credit. Uh, I was thinking that I was going to die. So I had an extreme motivation moment, right? Like I'm in a bad spot and I have to figure this out. Um, so it made, in a way, it made it easier for me. Uh, even though those things were very hard and a lot of people would have given up and said, you know, I'm just going to file bankruptcy, go get a job and never try to do anything again. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a completely different approach. And that approach was that I need to figure this out. I need to move forward. I need to make the right decisions to go forward. Uh, so that was very lucky of me. But at the end of the day, I think that um, any time in your life, you can recognize that you only have one life and you only have so much time. And so the greatest commodity that you have that you can never get back is your time. So waiting for the exact right time is actually a really big mistake. Your best Mm -hmm. choice is to just start now 
uh, whenever now is. And B, can, you know, part of starting is learning and mitigating risk. And so it might be that you're not going to buy a piece of real estate tomorrow in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can start studying your market. You can start looking at things and watching shows like this. And if you've already been doing that for a while, um, the next biggest mistake that I made, and honestly, probably the biggest mistake I ever made was not starting soon enough. If I had, mm-hmm. when I first, I told you when I was 15, I was watching real estate shows, right? And I'm reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I'm 17 or 18, right out of high school. Um, and I didn't start buying real estate until I was 30. Mm-hmm. That was a big mistake. If I had started when I was 18, 19 years old, when I got sick, I would have been fine. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have, I mean, I might've still been sick, but I would have, I yeah. wouldn't have been bankrupt. Um, and, you know, maybe that was the right time to buy. Maybe it wasn't, but the point is like you, you shouldn't have to wait until you get leukemia to start buying real estate. You should just do it now because what the leukemia did and the fact that I really did think I was going to die. Like, I mean, I was told I had, you know, weeks or months to live. Um, you know, unfortunately that didn't happen. So it could have been a lot worse, but, uh, but if I hadn't had that, I don't know when I would have started buying real estate. I might've started the next week. I might've, but I probably wouldn't have because I'd gone a decade of thinking about it without doing it. Um, if I had bought in 2006 at the top of the real estate cycle, it might've been painful when the market crashed. Um, but it wouldn't have been any worse than the bankruptcy I had anyway. Right. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, if I had held on because I had followed the rules and had cash flow uh, and had long-term debt in place so that I wasn't going to have to refinance in the middle of a recession. Um, you know, so if I had that spread and I had good conservative debt in place, uh, I could have just waited because the stuff in 2006 was cheaper in 2010, but it's until last month before the coronavirus thing, it was more expensive now than it was in 2006. So I could have just cash flowed the whole time. I would have been paying down my debt and I would have gotten to the point where uh, I could have sold it when it was higher. Uh, and if I didn't sell it last month, which I didn't, and the prices go down next month, which you know we talked that they might be doing right now, we don't know for sure. Um, it's okay because I can just wait until they go back up. I don't have to worry about it. Right. So uh, to me, you know, start now. That's the best advice I can give. Awesome. Just, just start now. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for your advice, for all your information, for all your insights. Um, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate uh, having talked to you. Um, how can people contact you if they say, Hey, this, this is it. He knows he knows some some things I would like to to, to uh, talk to sure. him. I'd like to call him. Yeah, so the easiest way to find me is probably to go to one of my two websites and just put your information into one of the contact Perfect. forms. Uh, yeah, so my websites I think you can put them in the show notes, Absolutely, but it's yeah. jeffreyholst.com um, is my personal site, and then I have oldfashionedrealestate.com as well. Um, but we do have two things that I would like to mention quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old fashioned real estate show where we just drink um, bourbon. So we get drunk a little bit and talk about real estate. Great, great resource for education. Uh, that's just YouTube only. So it's youtube.com slash old fashioned real estate. And then I have a Facebook group called the last life ever. Um, and this is not real estate related, but um, I think it's really, really great. Um, what we do there is we just help people motivate them to do whatever it is that they want to do in life. Um, so it's kind of what I was saying before about the mindset stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Last Life Ever, we have a podcast. Um, we just started it. We rolled it out three weeks ago, um, but we've been planning it for a year. Um, and it's just uh, it's just interviewing people doing extraordinary things with their life. 
uh, and, and things like that. So, you know, extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, but also just ordinary people that are doing things that help um, people that are adopting children nice. or, um, you know, or maybe they're um, helping people adjust to, you know, disabilities, you know, all this kind of stuff that, that can add an extra layer of fulfillment in your life, because it really isn't just about the money. It's about helping people live fulfilled and satisfied lives. Not everyone's going to be rich. Not everyone wants to be rich, right? Um, but everyone, I think, almost everyone wants to be happy. They want to have a fulfilled life. And you can do that in so many different ways. It can be because you uh, go for long walks in the park every day. And that's that's what you love to do. And if that's it, then that's what you should be doing. And that's what Last Life Ever is about. Um, and you can find that on my personal website and also Facebook. So Perfect. I'll, I'll link it in the YouTube uh, description and also in the show notes and on the podcast. Perfect. Appreciate Thanks. that. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Perfect. I, I thank you so much, uh, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for, for your time. And um, yeah, uh, we talk soon. We, we definitely keep in touch. And I send all the best regards to Shilanuga. Yeah, thank you. And sa same to you, Michael. I really, it means a lot to me that you had me on your show because I'm a completely different type of guest than what you normally have. But I, I think that my message is really useful to people, especially in this time. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.